Hello, hockey humans of the world, and welcome to Tough Call Podcast. Are you frustrated at the inconsistency of NHL officiating? Are you tired of the Department of Player Safety's wheel of random punishments? Do you think the NHL could do more to protect its players? Do you want to keep the physicality to see more open ice checks and thunderous contact in the game of hockey, but without all the headshots? If so, this is the podcast for you. If not, this is also the podcast for you because the whole point of this and the Tough Call YouTube channel is to generate discussion on where we want the sport of hockey to go from here. Tough Call isn't about what I think the real NHL would do in any given situation or even what I think they should do. It's about what I would do if I were in charge of setting the standard for penalties, fines, and suspensions in my own league. And here we go. This is Tough Call. Hi, folks. This is Tough Call Podcast Stanley Cup Playoff Edition, Episode 2, Round 2. My Round 2 recap of all the fines and suspensions I give during the second round of the Stanley Cup Playoffs, as well as all the incidents I'd like to talk about that that are pretty important. So, fasten your seatbelts. We're going to jump right into this week's weekly total fines and suspensions. During the second round of the 2023 Stanley Cup playoffs, the NHL's Department of Player Safety issued two fines and two suspensions. That matches their two fines and two suspensions from the first round they gave out. Over the course of round two, Tough Call would have issued six fines and 15 suspensions. This is slightly less than my two fines and 21 suspensions from round one. The first round, however, did feature 50 total games, giving me on average one fine for every 25 games and one suspension for every 2.38 games. Compared to my second round average of one fine every 3.83 games, one out of almost just less than four games I'm given a fine out in round two, and one suspension for every game and a half, 1.53 games. Now that is a little fine heavy for me. I'm usually more on the suspension side, but I wanted to give a lot more warnings in this round more than anything. And of course, no one wants to see that many fines or suspensions, but most of these are preventable and they would never have happened under my system because of what I'll call uh, preventative maintenance, I guess. As I always say, the goal of the NHL's Department of Player Safety should be prevention to stop dangerous plays before they happen and preventing subsequent injuries rather than waiting for injuries to happen and then punishing them after the fact. At that point, it's too late. More on how my system accomplishes this at the end of this segment, but let's go through my rundown of what I saw as punishable offenses from round two. And here's the ones that I and the Department of Player Safety agree on. These are the ones that we both recognized as punishable offenses. In game three of the series against the Carolina Hurricanes, Thomas Tatar got a fine from the real Department of Player Safety. He was fined $5,000 for high-sticking Sebastian Ajo. Now, I'd have given him eight games. And I know there's a significant difference between $5,000 fine and an eight-game suspension, especially in the playoffs. Now, my system doesn't allow for any sort of ratio and proportion for games on the regular season versus games in the playoffs. To me, a game is a game is a game. The brain doesn't matter whether it's injured in June or September. So my system shouldn't have anything to do with that. In fact, Players don't lose salary in the playoffs because they're not being paid for the playoffs. So uh, an eight-game suspension in the regular season also means salary lost, where an eight-game suspension in the playoffs just means time lost. So in some ways, it's less punitive. In other ways, you could argue, yeah, it's more punishment because the games mean more. But to me, 
if the games mean more, the players should try that much harder to stay in them, to not be dangerous. So to me, I don't really allow for that. A game is a game is a game. And I would have given him eight games for this because to me, it it was a turnaround swing with the stick, turnaround axe swing at head height. Like it doesn't matter how forceful it was in a way to a certain degree. That's super dangerous no matter how forceful it is. And then the fact that there was a little bit of force behind it means that, yeah, it is ridiculously dangerous. It has nothing to do with hockey. That should have not even have been anything that crossed his mind. To me, a $5,000 fine for that isn't going to cut it. So I would have given him an eight-game suspension. That goes into my six- to ten-game suspension range for a play that has nothing to do with hockey. In game four of the Oilers and Vegas series, Darnell Nurse got an automatic one-game suspension for instigating a fight in the final five minutes. Look, that's in the rule book. Okay, fair enough. I agree. Give him the one game. Also in that game, Alex Petrangelo of the Vegas Golden Knights was given a one-game suspension by the actual Department of Player Safety for slashing Leon Dreisaitl across the arm. And I'd have given him 10 games because he went out of his way to make this happen. He 100% went around one of his own players who was already chasing Dreisaitl Plus, the puck was gone. So when you factor in those two things, he wasn't even the one that was checking Dreisaitl to begin with. And he went out of his way to carry on and go past his own player after the puck was gone. It's already bad enough. That's already whatever he does, that's a penalty, is already worth more because of those two things. So forget what it even was at this point. Then when you consider the fact that it was an overhead, two-handed chop, down onto someone's arm. What are you trying to do there besides injure them? So you look at the degree of danger, you look at the degree of necessity for a hockey purpose, in this case, absolutely zero. You look at how far removed it is from a hockey play, and then you add that it's already a significantly dangerous thing. Combine those few factors, and you're looking at a long suspension. Should be, should be longer than most things that you see on the ice. So for me, this is 10 games. In game two uh, for Florida, Sam Bennett, I would have given him 10 games for cross-checking Michael Bunting. And he cross-checked him twice. He cross-checked him in the head, knocked him down, and then cross-checked him in the back while he was down. And this brings up the debate about calling multiple infractions on the same play. For me, he cross-checked him twice. He should get two penalties, not just one as a combination cumulative of all the cross-checks you give, each cross-check is worth a penalty. So call the penalties. Now, the Department of Player Safety in this case issued a fine for him. Again, to me, a fine doesn't cut it here. This is a cross-check to the head. And he cross-checked him again while he was down. So to me, the whole incident is 10 games. Now, here's the ones that I think they missed. I'm going to work series by series. In the Panthers-Leaf series, as I said, in Game 2, Sam Bennett should have gotten a suspension for that cross-check. Not a fine. But to make matters worse, under my tough call system, that incident never even would have happened. Because in Game 1, I would have suspended Sam Bennett four games for charging. There was a hit where he skated down and left his feet and launched himself into an opponent. I would have suspended him four games for that incident. Therefore, he never would have been in Game 2 to acquire that other suspension. So there's a way that my scale 
my system would have eliminated one of those suspensions. This is not a new thing for Sam Bennett. It's not out of his character. He was suspended once before in the playoffs. In fact, in last year's first round for charging Tampa's Blake Coleman. And here he is again in game one charging David Kampf. And there was no call. He left his feet and launched. This is a habit by this player. He was suspended, I think, one game or something for that charge uh, last year. He should have been suspended again this year for the exact same thing. Also in that series, in Game 2, Matthew Kachuk, he charged Matthew Knees. He should have got two games for charging. He stepped up, and he actually slowed up on the hit. So people are going to say, well, he let up. He could have really driven through him, but he let up. And what really happened was he skated towards his opponent, stopped up, which should have been the end of it. And then at that point, he felt he still needed to make the hit. So then he launched himself into his opponent. Only he's going slower now. So when he launches, he goes upward and outward. And if you stand beside someone about a foot away from them and then jump outward and upward towards them, what are you going to hit? You're going to go through their head. And that's exactly what we should have been avoiding. That's why he stopped, so that he wouldn't hit him in the head. And then he chose to do things to hit him in the head anyway. That should have been a suspension. It's only a, a minor penalty, like a not a severe one is what I should say. So I'd have given him two games for charging on that. But still, it should be acknowledged by the Department of Player Safety. And then finally in that series, well, actually not. I see another one on my list here. In game four, I would have suspended Radko Gudis three games for charging as well. The one, that famous one after the whistle where there was a delayed penalty for Florida and you know the player camp was going to touch the puck and have the play blown dead. And Gudis skated super hard at him and drove him into the boards. It would have been probably a legal body check had the circumstances been different. Like the technique wasn't that bad, I guess is what I'm saying. But the situation and the violence of the hit for the situation, when everyone knew the play was going to be stopped, that should have been a suspension. We should not be encouraging that kind of behavior. And in Game 5, Mark Stahl, I would have given him three games for interference on Mitch Marner. Now, this is the one just before overtime of the final game, before like when the series ended that game, and it was a tie game, and this would have put the Leafs on the power play for the very end of the third, maybe, but definitely for the start of overtime. That changed things significantly for me. And it was a nothing play. Mitch Marner was chasing a loose puck. Another Florida player was going to get it, and Mark Stahl was just standing beside Marner. And for whatever reason, Stahl stopped up and drove backwards up into Mitch Marner's head. At the very least, this should have been a two-minute minor for interference, at the bare minimum. But really, it was a targeted headshot to a vulnerable player who should not be expecting a hit in that situation. He's not eligible to be hit in that situation, and you're going to go for the head. This looks very similar to what Michael Bunting did in the first round to the Tampa player, Chernak, and he got three games for that. It looks very much the same, if you want to really compare it to something, as the Hartman shot on Ehlers near the end of the regular season. And Hartman was also suspended for that. So if this is a suspension in the regular season, just a couple of weeks prior to this, and it was a suspension in the first round of the playoffs, where's the consistency where this is not even a suspension, it's not even a minor penalty called on the ice? That 
is an embarrassment to the league. It possibly changed the outcome of that series, and it should never have happened. In the Golden Knights-Oilers series, in Game 2, I would have given Evander Kane five games for being the aggressor of an altercation with Keegan Colsar. Now, I did make a video of this on why. This is the one where there was a scrum and then Colsar was down on the ice and Kane decided to give him four or five body shots, punches to the ribs. And I know what people are saying. Well, if he'd have really wanted to hurt him, he would have hit him in the head. He went for the body and we should almost be rewarding him for that? Is that what you're saying? Because he could have hurt him worse or done something even more stupid? Just because he was only the bare minimum stupid, we shouldn't punish him? That's what I'm hearing. To me, this was needless. It was taking advantage of a player who was down and completely unable to defend himself, and you're going to punch him like that. What do you think Colesire is going to do the next time he gets in the corner with Kane? And you're thinking to yourself, that's why you should do it, Josh. That's why Kane did it, to get in his kitchen so that next time he'll be mad enough to do something stupid on Kane and take a penalty. Well, why would we call it on Colesire? when we wouldn't suspend Kane for the same thing. Seems really counterintuitive. To intentionally do something illegal, on purpose and violent, to take advantage of a vulnerable player, just so you can get him mad enough to do the same thing to you. We can't accept that as the Department of Player Safety. Even if you think that's a good strategy as a player, as a coach, that's not what the Department of Player Safety is there to do, to encourage strategic violence by teams. You're there to control the violence to decide what you want to see in hockey and what you don't. And to me, this is something that they shouldn't, as a safety department, condone in hockey. In game two of that same series, I would have fined Aiden Hill for slashing Brett Kulak. This is a situation where a player with the puck is driving towards the net. The Oilers' Brett Kulak had the puck. He went to take a chance on goal. The puck went behind the net. And as Kulak was skating around the net, Hill reached out with his stick and chopped him down. And it wasn't much of a slash, but... It was horrifically dangerous in, the, in terms of the situation where you have a player skating really fast towards the boards behind the net and you're going to chop his legs out from under him. He could slide in there and break his neck. I know it didn't happen, but we're not there to punish uh, injuries after the fact, remember. The Department of Player Safety should be there to stop injuries before they happen. And discouraging goalies from slashing the legs out of players that are skating hard behind the net is certainly a way to go ahead and prevent that injury from ever happening. So I'd give it a $2,500 fine. I'd give Aiden Hill a fine. In game three, lo and behold, Mr. Evander Kane, he got away with it in the first game, so why wouldn't he do it again? He, at, this is the one where he went out of his way at the end of a period to skate all the way down to the corner and cross-check Alex Petrangelo in the head. There's two things people are going to tell me here. He meant to hit him in the shoulder, and it slipped up into the head. Does that sound like a reasonable excuse to you? Why are you cross-checking anyone in the shoulder or neck area at all? If you're that close that if you miss, it's going to go up into the head, then to me that's the same as the head. That's why the IIHF uh, considers head contact as anything to the head and neck area because there's no reason hockey-wise to hit someone in the shoulder either. So if you are already doing something illegal and then it happens to ride up and hit them in the head, well, too bad because you should have seen it coming. So to me, I don't understand why that's a reasonable excuse. I didn't mean to hit him in the head. I only meant to hit him in the upper shoulder. That's not going to cut it for me, not under my system. And the fact that he went so out of his way to do it, I mean, there was even players on both teams that were already going towards the bench because the period was basically over. 
I know Petrangelo should be expecting some contact because I'm all for playing till the whistle, playing till the buzzer. I'm all for that. I can see why Evander Kane went down there and wanted to put pressure on him and show that he was going to go to the whistle. But if I'm Petrangelo, I should be expecting legal contact. I shouldn't be prepared for a player to cross-check me anywhere near my shoulder and especially not in my face. It's not my job to be prepared for that. So we can't blame him for not being ready or not protecting himself. That's insane to do that. So for me, this is nine games for cross-checking because anything cross-checking to the head or neck is automatically in the six to ten game suspension category. And the fact that he went so out of his way to do it, the sheer avoidability of this incident puts it in the higher end of games. So that's nine games. In game three of this series, Nicholas Hag tried to throw a body check on Zach Hyman. And Zach Hyman avoided it. He was going to get around Hag. So Hag stuck his leg out and hit Hyman in the knee. You can't do that. Players have to accept when they are beaten one-on-one. They can't reach out or extend it out or lunge out. I can see why they do, and players do it all the time. But in this case, it creates very dangerous knee-on-knee contact. You cannot let that slide. So I had to give three games for kneeing to Nicholas Hag on Zach Hyman. Also in game three, Shea Theodore. I would have given him six games for spearing clean Costin. This isn't a hard one. Now, Costin did cross-check him three times in the back, and there was no call. That's not Costin's fault that the referee didn't call it. It's certainly not Shea Theodore's fault, but Shea Theodore can't respond by spearing him in the groin, okay? Like, we can't let it go just because the ref missed one call. Spearing is a significant penalty. And, of course, because they want to let it slide, because Costin had it coming, they're not going to give Theodore the match penalty for spearing. They're going to call it slashing. And that's what they did. They called it slashing. And they always do that. They always give the player who's spearing the benefit of the doubt and call it slashing so that they don't have to give out that match penalty. But to me, they need to start doing it because if you look back over the last three years, how many slashing penalties were issued that were actually spears? It's, it's almost ridiculous how many there are. They need to curb that behavior. They need to start calling a spear a spear. So I'd have given him the penalty for spearing, and because spearing has nothing to do with hockey, to me that's in the 6-10 to 10 game suspension category. Because the force was minimal, it's the bare minimum of six games. In game five, what do you know, Keegan Colsire, the guy who was taking these body shots, well, he did get his revenge. He skated really hard and checked Matthias Ekholm, into the boards from behind. And to me, this is four games for boarding. He could have avoided this contact. I have a video on my YouTube channel again about this incident, as I do for all these incidents. So you can look at my in-depth analysis of them. But this is a very avoidable hit into the boards that caused an injury. And it was avoidable because of the angle of approach. So to me, this is an easy four-game suspension. And in game five, Clean Costin... I defined him $2,500 for roughing. And what it is, it's the same thing that I that I find uh, Jesperi Kotkaniemi for. I suspended him, actually, in the first round for the exact same thing. So I'm being consistent. And what it is is these flying butt checks. So you're skating towards an opponent, and you want to throw a hit on them, but you turn your back and then launch yourself backwards into it. It's almost like creating a reverse hit situation where there doesn't need to be one. And what players do is not only do they turn their back, 
when they push backwards towards the opponent, then they reach their arms out like wings so that they make themselves bigger and catch the opponent. Even if the player's going to miss their body, they'll get caught by the arm. Well, I don't know when they added in the rule book that you're allowed to do a flying clothesline. Imagine if you went straight at a player, like a WWE wrestler, and instead of body checking them, you stuck your arm out and clotheslined them across the throat. That would be ridiculous to do when you're facing the player, right? That's an easy penalty. So why is it okay just because we turn our back and then throw ourselves backwards? Then we're allowed to throw our arms up and out and catch someone in the head and it's not a penalty? It doesn't make any sense. So I defined him $2,500 because I don't want to see this happen again. And the precedent would have been set in the first round by the tough call system because I would have punished Katkaniemi for the same thing. Moving on to the Hurricanes-Devils series. In game two of that series, Miles Wood, I'd have given him three games for charging on just Barry Kotkaniemi. This is just a standard charge for leaving your feet. He's trying to deliver a regular body check, but instead of just going through the opponent's core, he jumped and launched up towards the head. So that's an easy three games. Game two, Jonas Siegenthaler, I'd have given him a $3,000 fine for removing an opponent's helmet which is a big trend these days. In the scrums, you put your arm around an opponent's head, you rip their helmet off. Now they're exposed, and now if you punch them, it's going to hurt even more. You're adding danger where it doesn't need to be. And in this case, it was done during the play, which is almost more important to curb because now the player who loses their helmet has to make a decision. They either have to stop what they're doing, pick their helmet up, and put it back on their head, or they have to immediately leave the ice and go to the bench. If they don't do that, if they continue to play without a helmet, they will get a minor penalty. So it's advantageous to rip a player's helmet off, especially when you're in their end. So now they're in the defensive end. Then if they leave the zone and go to the bench to get a new helmet or to let someone come on, now you're five on four for however long that takes. So there's a big advantage to ripping a player's helmet off. So what they have to do is they need to make it a bigger penalty. They need to discourage it more from happening. So, of course, if you rip a player's helmet off, it's supposed to be an automatic minor penalty, which I like. They counter the other minor penalty for playing without a helmet by making it an automatic penalty to rip a player's helmet off. But to me, they need to increase that. They need to, first of all, call it more consistently. And second of all, if a player is found guilty of that, I think they should tack on an automatic fine for that. And that's what I did. So I'd fine Stiegenthaler, $3,000 for removing the opponent's helmet, as I have for any player this playoffs who has removed an opponent's helmet. That's my fine. Also in that series, the last one, game three, Shane Gostisbehere, I would have fined him $2,500 for unsportsmanlike conduct. And what happened here was the puck was coming towards the blue line and he tried to shoot it and he broke his stick and he wanted to get back in a hurry and he knows he needs to drop his stick or it's a penalty for playing with illegal equipment. But for whatever reason, he threw his stick, launched it over the glass and into the crowd. To me, yeah, I can see how it happened. It was accidental, but it was completely avoidable. I think you should find a player for doing that. I think we should also find players, like I do in my system, I would find anyone who's really mad and goes and slams their stick over the boards or the net and it breaks, Those splinters, those pieces that go flying away like shrapnel, those are extremely dangerous. And if you can't control your emotions enough to not smash your stick and break it in half, then you probably deserve a penalty anyway. 
And that's what we need to ask players to do, is control their emotions a little more. If you want to slam your stick, that's fine, but you run the risk of injuring someone. And we've seen players, on, even on their own bench, we had a player this year, I can't remember who it was now, slammed their stick against the boards, and he actually hit his opponent, or his teammate, sorry, on his bench in the face and injured him. You can't risk doing that, particularly to, to a fan who's paid money to come watch your product. And then you're going to throw your stick into the crowd at them because it's broken. It's exceptionally dangerous. It needs to stop. $2,500 fine to Shane Gostaspear. And then lastly, in the Stars Kraken series, I would have fined Ty Delandria in Game 3. I would have fined him $5,000 for unsportsmanlike conduct. And in the same incident, I would have fined Jamie Benn. Well, I would, I would have suspended Jamie Benn five games for interfering from the player's bench. So in this incident, Delandria was battling with, I think it was Yanni Gord, and they were just outside the benches. And Delandria tucked Gord's stick into his arm and then went into the bench with it. Now, if you remember, this happened in the first round. There was a Carolina player who was hit into the bench of the Rangers. Someone broke his stick on the bench, and I would have fined or suspended that person. And you remember... In the Boston series, I think it was Tyler Bertuzzi, took the stick out of a player's hand, brought it into his bench, and then tried to break it. Again, I'm consistent with these punishments. That is a punishment that deserves supplementary discipline when you start to interfere with things when you're off the playing surface. So Delandria, consistent as can be, hooked his arm on Gord's stick, brought it into the player's bench, and then Jamie Benn reached over, who was not ever on the ice, he was always on the bench, and grabbed the stick and pulled it from there, too. So for me, for Delandria, since he was actually on the ice involved in the original altercation, to me, that's not quite as bad. But because he dragged the stick into the player's bench, it's $5,000 fine for me. And then because Jamie Benn was never on the ice surface, and he ended up interfering with the stick and pulling on it, that's five games automatically for interfering from the player's bench under the top cost system. We've got to keep these people on the bench, out of the play. And in game three, Hockenpah, I would have fined him $5,000 for cross-checking Yanni Gord. This is just a typical battle in front of the net where two players are kind of facing each other and then the stick got up into the face, head, neck area. And again, I'm super consistent with that. I've suspended or fined every cross-check to the head this playoffs. And this is no different. There's a $5,000 fine for cross-checking. So as you can see, being consistent would start to curb these behaviors. The cross-checking to the head that happened in round one, I'd have suspended. So this cross-check to the head in game three of round two would never have happened. I'm very consistent about fining or suspending players that interfere from the player's bench. So I know for a fact that the, the punishments I gave out in round one would stop this from happening in round two. So those two would be gone. So all of a sudden, I'm down... Two fines and a suspension. I've been very consistent about fining players for ripping helmets off, so that Siegenthaler fine would never have happened. I've been very consistent about fining players for being unsportsmanlike with broken sticks, so this Gostaspare fine would probably never have happened. I'm very consistent about punishing players for launching into hits, so I'm pretty sure that at this point in the game, Miles Wood would know not to leave his feet for a routine check. Same thing with Matthew Kachuk. Uh, I'm consistent on calling spearing, so that would never happen. So you can see how if you apply rules consistently and set a good standard, it would eliminate a lot of these. And I bet you 
that by the time I went through my entire list, based on my history of being consistent and being steadfast on my punishments under my scale, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't be anywhere near six fines and 15 suspensions. I'd probably be a lot closer to the real NHL's Department of Player Safety, two fines and two suspensions, only the danger in my league would never be as high as it is now in the regular NHL. We'd have the same amount of punishments, but the standard would be set so that the punishments are for lesser degree of violence. That's how my system would work. I think we should give it a shot. Round two's by request, the incident that people wanted me to cover the most was the Radko Gudis interference on this series-winning overtime goal by Nick Cousins where Gudis drove the net and took away the stick and the body position of, of Callie-Yan Kroc. And it was interference. It is common practice, as I said in my video on my YouTube channel about this incident, it is definitely common practice for that attacking player, in this case Gudis, the one without the puck, to do what's called a middle lane drive. And what that is, is you push the puck to the outside, and then the player without the puck that crosses the blue line first drives into the defense, either directly between the two defenders or directly in front of one of them, and pushes them back, drives them down through the middle to open up the space behind for the player with the puck crossing the blue line. It's definitely something that you are intentionally supposed to do by design. You are supposed to eliminate their stick, but usually you eliminate their stick simply by swatting it away with your own stick or something like that. You don't go in and grab it with your hand and squeeze it and pull it out of the way and lift it up out of the way and push the player out of the way in the process. That was really excessive. And it was, to me, I can see why an official might not pick up on it in the moment, but honestly, it's just too bad that they didn't because it, it did change things. The same way not calling Mark Stahl's interference on Mitchell Marner, people are saying, well, it doesn't really matter. It didn't change the outcome of the series. It did. It, it led to the Leafs not having a power play in overtime to start the overtime. And then this play led to the series winning goal. Like You can't tell me that it didn't change the outcome of the series just because statistically it's highly unlikely the Leafs would have completed the comeback. This is a critical play that now these players are going to have to live with for the rest of the season. And Florida gets to move on because of this play, because of this interference. So whether it's right or wrong that it is going to play a huge factor in what you may or may not think the odds are of the Leafs coming back, it's still a penalty, and they still scored a goal illegally. Whether you think they were going to score anyway or not is irrelevant when you're looking at whether or not they should call this play and how much people should be upset about it. I'm just as upset about this play as I am about any other missed call. Okay, I'm not really trying to set the world on fire and say there should be a protest and the playoffs should be canceled until they resolve that. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that it, would, it is an extra frustrating thing for a team to have to go through when they're already a little bit frustrated and then this is the way their season ends. That's a lot to take. That's a lot to live with when you're, when you're thinking about another summer and the pressure that was put on you this year and all of the, the highs and lows of your playoff run. Do you really want it to end on something like this? And it was 
a holding the stick penalty. It was an interference penalty. There was a lot of different ways that Gudis took Jan Krok illegally out of that play. And because it was requested so much, I just wanted to point out the difference between a routine middle lane drive and this one. Like I said, in a routine middle lane drive, you're just sort of eliminating that defender's stick. Maybe hitting it away with your stick, and you might even want to call that interference sometimes, even though it's just kind of a, a stick tap on stick. You're still doing it on purpose to create extra room that you wouldn't normally have if that defender was allowed to play their position. So even that should be borderline interference. So when you actually drive the defender's leg out of the way, pick their stick up with your hand and hold onto it for multiple seconds right before the puck goes in the net, yeah, I think this could be easily looked at as a pretty bad missed call. This episode's Incident of the Week, or I suppose now that we're in playoff mode, I should just call it the Incident of Round 2, comes from Game 2 of the series between the Carolina Hurricanes and the New Jersey Devils. It's the Jesper fast hit on Ryan Graves that ended up causing Graves to leave with an upper body injury. And we're looking at distance traveled. We're looking at the fact that Jesper Fast did glide into this hit. But can it still be a charge if he glides into the hit? I would say yes, it can because of the distance traveled. And when you're looking at a charge, it's not necessarily just about number of strides. It's about did the strides, did the method of the way you covered all that distance, did it meaningfully contribute to the violence of impact? Or did you just do enough to get yourself into a position to make the hit and then did you slow down and calm yourself and put yourself under control to finish the check? That's the difference between a charge and somebody just working really hard to get to a spot in a good position and then finishing a check anyway. It, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a penalty just because, just because you take a lot of strides on approach. It's did that distance traveled help you gain momentum that you used to create excessive force of impact? We're also looking here at did he push him in with both hands was it a nice shoulder check where you just kind of leaned enough to finish the check? Or did you then follow through with arm extension? That sort of thing. And in this case, one of the other things is, where were they angled directly into the boards? And in this case, Jesper Fast did take an angle of approach that no matter how he hit Graves, whether it was from behind or from the side or from the front, there's no way Graves would have gone anywhere but into the boards based on the straight line angle of approach. And that's exactly what happened. He went violently, forcefully backwards into the boards. It was not from behind, but that's more because Graves rotated his body to play the puck and opened himself up for that hit. And listen, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Should Graves have tried to protect himself a little more? How much of this is on him? And here's my thought on that is time after time after time after time after time, the forechecking player, in this case, Jesper Fast, the forechecking player enters these situations with the hit already made from the time they cross the blue line. They already know what they're going to do. Now, I don't like to base my decisions of supplemental discipline off my guess of what a player is thinking. I don't think you can get into their head and make those assumptions and base any sort of punishment off of it. But you can't tell me I don't know what he's thinking because you know it's true too. The number one argument I get against penalties on these types of plays is the defender should know a hit is coming and he has, has to take it. So it's on him because he didn't try and protect himself. It's just the cost of going to the corner. 
But really, no one should know a hit is coming for sure. The player receiving the check or the player delivering the check shouldn't know for sure whether they're going to finish that check until probably the bottom of the circles, maybe even the goal line. Now, you could assume a hit is likely to happen, but it seems like I say this almost daily now, four checkers can't approach these situations with the mentality of, I know I'm going to hit, and if something goes wrong, I'm going to try my best to bail on it. It should be more like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to hit, I'm prepared for contact, but we'll see what happens, and I won't commit for sure until I get there. That's what it should be. You should be in a position where you're in full control, you're low, your stick is on the ice, you are not throwing any type of force or extending unnecessarily outward or upward to the point that you lose all control over softening the blow or trying to avoid it completely if something goes wrong. The onus is always on the player delivering the check. That's the mentality. That's the wording in the rule book. But we're not quite there yet in terms of really honestly believing that and taking a stand and making that be the full case. There's too many times where we let a player off the hook completely because the player that's receiving the check didn't really do anything to protect themselves and put themselves in a vulnerable position. So right now the line is that it's either the player delivering the check did something wrong and we'll call it a penalty or the player receiving the check put themselves in a vulnerable position so we won't call anything. It is possible that the player delivering the check can do something wrong, make a mistake, and commit a penalty and still have the player receiving the check make themselves vulnerable and make the situation worse than it had to be. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't call the penalty that created the contact in the first place. Because generally, a player not protecting themselves isn't dangerous unless someone is going to do something wrong to them in the first place. Generally, if a player doesn't protect themselves and a player hits them the right way, nothing happens at all. The hit part is more dangerous than the player not protecting themselves part. And in this case, it's kind of a perfect example because if Jesper Fast had taken a different angle, if he had just kind of slightly turned a little more and driven Graves backwards uh, on an angle away from the boards or more on a 45-degree angle with the boards as opposed to strike back into the boards, then the injury wouldn't have been nearly as severe, if any at all. What caused the injury and what caused the danger was that this player was sent straight back into the boards in an uncomfortable angle. So the player delivering the check still could have done things better to lessen the degree of danger, even though the opponent was completely vulnerable. The danger still lies in the hitting part. So we need to ask players and we need to ask ourselves to honestly commit to the idea that the onus is truly and fully on the player delivering the check. If you're enjoying this episode and want to be a part of the discussion, please take a moment to hit subscribe and leave a quick review so more people will be able to find the show. And the next time you're on YouTube, subscribe to the Tough Call channel, where hundreds of comments are left every single day about the incidents I've covered here on this podcast, as well as videos of clean checks and more. Those are two great ways. And now to end the episode, here's the thing. We're talking about multiple infractions. 
how multiple infractions should also mean multiple penalties. When someone does one thing wrong and then commits another penalty right after, call two penalties. If two penalties are committed, two penalties should be called and put on the scoreboard. It's not fair to let a player get away with something just because they're already being called on something. And the same thing if you're on a five-on-four power play and you have a penalty committed against you, you should be rewarded for that with a five-on-three power play. The rule book should not change just because you are already on a penalty kill. The rule book should not change just because your team already has three penalties and the other team doesn't have any. The rule book should not change because you've just committed a penalty and the arm is already in the air and the referee doesn't feel like calling another one and putting it on five on three. That is not the way things should work. A penalty is a penalty is a penalty. And it would save a lot of nonsense. I mean, how many times do you see a player, the arm is up, they know they're getting a penalty against them, so they just run around and try and suck anyone into coming with them to the box because they don't want to be the only one to go and put their team down. What do they do then? They go in someone's face. They do a face wash. They slash the person a little bit. They do something that would normally probably be a coincidental penalty if that player punched them back. So in this case, they're actually doing it to try and get that other player to take an extra penalty on top of that because they know they're already getting one and the second one won't be called. When, like I said, in other circumstances, if they did that and then the other player punched them back, they'd both go. So what would be the difference here? Why does that work? Why is that a strategy people have? Because it works. Because the officials don't call that second penalty on that player. So it actually encourages them to go incite a riot so that they're the only ones that aren't going to the box. They don't want to feel bad. They don't want to put themselves in that spot where they've cost their team. So they go around and it's it's actually a smart thing to do to try and Sucker someone else into a penalty by committing another one because you know it's not going to be called. Take that option off the board. Make players play honestly all the time. I don't know why the rule book changes from the regular season to the playoffs. I don't know why it changes from the first period to the third period. I don't know why it changes from game one to game seven, from the first round to the finals. And I don't know why it changes just because a team is already getting a penalty. The rule book should be the rule book, should be the rule book, should be the rule book all the time. Be consistent, be honest about it, set a tone, set a standard, and stick with it. You can find all my breakdowns of the incidents I cover here and many more at the Tough Call YouTube channel. And I'm also on Twitter, at Tough Call Pod. I'm a regular contributor and proud member of the Heavy Hockey Network. To support my other work, look for my contributions on the Heavy Hockey Network YouTube channel, as well as a few articles on the website, heavyhockey.com. Thanks for choosing Tough Call, and enjoy the hockey.